Our text comes from Mark chapter 14 this morning. And they led Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed them at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming, them, and warming himself by the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some of them stood and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with the hands, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another. Not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? But he remained silent, and he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. Yet some began to spit on him and to cover his face and, some, and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the, guards, <clears throat> and the guards received him with blows. And Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were the one with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you mean. And he went into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man was one of him. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to sweat. I do not know this man or whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Good morning. It is so good to be with each and every single one of you this morning. Um, as Mark mentioned, my name is Campbell Terry, son of David and Kim Terry, one of the, one of the five, the basketball team. You'll probably see us coming through the parking lot because you'll be like, oh, that's a very large family. Uh, we're kind of hard to miss um, as we're coming through. Um, but I'm a Basin boy through and through. Um, was born and raised here in West Texas. Um, my heart got really excited as I got into Odessa and I saw Taco Villa and Roses. I was like, man, I am back. It is good to be here. Um, graduated from Permian High School in 2017 and went on to attend University of Texas Permian Basin, uh, UTPB otherwise known as University of the Peanut Butter, um, to everyone that attended there. Um, and right now, I'm currently living in Kansas City, Missouri, where I am pursuing my Master's of Divinity um, with an emphasis in Biblical Counseling. Um, but it is so good to be with each and every single one of you this morning. I'm appreciative to Tanner um, and just giving me this opportunity to be able to be here. Um, I was thinking about this this morning. I've known Tanner for over half my life, um, and it's a miracle that he's still friends with me. To this day, he met acne-covered Campbell, um, hormonal teenage Campbell, and just depressy Campbell. Um, and so the fact that he even um, talks to me and communicates with me, and we're still friends to this day, um, is an absolute miracle. Um, but let's just pray, and then we will get rocking and we'll get rolling this morning. Oh, man, dear Grace, Heavenly Father, 
God, what a, just a blessing and an honor it is to be able to be here this morning and being able to open up your word, Father. Um, God, as we d- dive into Mark chapter 14 this morning, Father, God, I just pray um, that you be big. Father, may your kingdom come and may your will be done. Father, may your gospel message be declared. Um, Father, may you work through me this morning. Father, may you just allow me to just take a back seat this morning and may Jesus, may you just uh, take the reins this morning um, and may you be big. Father's most gracious heavenly name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and open those up and turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verse 52. Mark chapter 14, verse 52 is where we're going to be heading this morning. Now, growing up, I loved storytelling. I loved being able to tell my friends everything that was happening during my week. I loved being able to share with my mentors what was going on. But I also loved being able to come home and tell all my siblings who were homeschooled at the time the fears of public high school, and this is how it compares to what we see on TV. Um, But I also enjoyed getting to tell my parents anything and everything that was happening. And this is still something that I love to do. Tanner will tell you that I love storytelling because, historically speaking, I have the world's longest sermon introduction, and I have a tendency to exaggerate and overdramatize, as my mom would say. This is something that I still have to be aware of. If I was growing up, I could go to my mom and tell my mom, Mom, I caught a fish this big today. Now, where I would catch a fish this big in West Texas, I don't know, but I could tell her, Mom, I caught a fish this big today. And she would raise her eyebrow ever so slightly and be like, was it really that big? And my hands would slowly begin to work their way back in because I have a tendency to over-dramatize and over-exaggerate. And growing up, I thought, oh, this is, this is just innocent, right? That, you know, stretching the truth just a little bit, over-dramatizing events, over-exaggerating that it's okay. But what this did is it had several implications for me and my reliability as a witness, Namely, my sister, who's here this morning being used as a collaborating witness, saying, yes, Mom, that did indeed happen. Mom always trusts her girl, and I was an unreliable witness because of how much I would begin to stretch the truth and whatever crazy story that I would come up with for that day. And this morning, as we dive into Mark chapter 14, we're going to see several implications of Jesus being the perfect witness and what that means for us. In the midst of standing on trial and receiving the most unjust and unfair trial of all time in human history, there are several implications of what it means for us and for our walks with Christ. Now, there is a lot happening here in these few verses, and I would encourage you, if you have some time this week, if you have time to dive into Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, it really goes along really, really well with with what we're covering this morning. It was continuing to come up as I was getting ready. There's just not enough time to be able to cover everything that's happening in these few short chapters, especially as we're getting closer and closer to the cross during this week of Passover, but I would encourage you as we begin getting closer and closer to the cross to begin working your way through the later part of Hebrews. Now at this point in Mark's gospel, we find ourselves in chapter 14 that Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas. He finds himself in custody about to go and stand trial in front of the Sanhedrin council. Now we'll talk about them more in depth here in just a second about what they are, but the Sanhedrin council is the highest level of Jewish governing authority at this time. Ultimately, ultimately, they are under the rule of the Roman authority, but this is the highest level of Jewish governing authority and governing body at this time. So Jesus is standing trial in front of these dudes who are very, very high up in the, in the religious organization at this time. Now, there are no coincidences either in the way that God works. His, way, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. We also find ourselves in the week of Passover. 
Now, Passover is this Jewish celebration, is this Jewish festival celebrating God's delivery of Israel from Egypt and from the book of Exodus whenever Moses took them out. It's a week of remembering and celebrating everything that God did. Now, there's several things that are remembered and that are celebrated, one of the things being the plagues that God sent and he put on the nation of Egypt. One of these is the passing over where the firstborn sons of Israel were spared by having the blood of the lamb covering their doorstead. And the perfect lamb, the only son of God, is, is ultimately preparing to pour out his blood for all of humanity so that all who call upon him can be saved and have his blood covering their lives should they choose to accept his free gift of everlasting life. Jesus is preparing to be the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate delivery. And it's here that we find ourselves in verse 53. Mark chapter 14, verse 53 says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Now we'll talk about Peter and his implications of the story here in just a second. But what Jesus is happening right here, he is getting ready to go and stand in front of the Sanhedrin council that we mentioned just a little while ago. Again, this is the highest level of Jewish governing authority at this time. It's important to note a couple of things of what is happening right here to Jesus by all of these men getting together. It's not a coincidence that this is happening. What is being assembled right here, a capital case, is being put together against Jesus. What the Sanhedrin Council is ultimately seeking out is to put Jesus to death. The Sanhedrin Council, they are assembling in the night. We know that the betrayal and the timeline of Jesus' events, we know that this is taking place in the night. But what's interesting here is several things are beginning to happen with this council getting getting together. Some of the interesting things that are happening most primarily is the, un- is the injustice of what is happening. See, numerous violations according to Old Testament law and to Jewish traditions are being broken here. Capital cases such like this against Jesus where the punishment is death, is if a guilty verdict was found that will find ultimately what did end up happening at the very end, a second day and a second trial would need to take place. Jesus did not receive a second day. He did not receive a second trial. Capital cases such as these were forbidden to happen at night under the cover of darkness. We know that as soon as Jesus was taken into custody, we know that he faced trial right then and right there to be presented to Pilate early Friday morning. We also know that whenever, that whenever Jesus, he'd had no one speaking for him. He had no lawyer, so to speak. He had no one speaking on, on his behalf. He had a group of somewhere between 30 and 50 men just throwing accusations his way. Again, Jesus, the perfect Son of God who did no wrong, received the most unjust, out-of-order trial of all time. But it's surprising here, considering who he's being put on trial by. Jesus in his ministry going through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see several things and several themes of Jesus' teaching and what he does. We see one of the things that he constantly does over and over and over is speak against the Pharisees and their religion, of their level of morality, that they are so legalistic that they have completely missed the point of the law, which ultimately points to Jesus. What would cause such a dramatic switch in persona to have men that are so legalistic, so moralistic to the fact that they have completely missed Jesus to now putting on the spectacle of this most unjust trial of all time. It's kind of surprising when you think about it. What is causing this such dramatic switch in persona? 
If you look ahead to Mark chapter 15, verse 10, we actually find the answer. Mark chapter 15, verse 10, Pilate saw that it was because of envy that Jesus was delivered to him to be crucified. Now, this is a whole other sermon for another time. But if you look here, if you want to see the fruits of envy and what it, and what it causes by hanging on to that bitterness and that anger, look no further than the fruits of Jesus' unjust trial. It causes a jekyll to turn into hide. It brings out the absolute worst in people. By hanging on to those things, we see that the Pharisees who have been hanging on to this for all of Jesus' physical ministry have now, it has gotten to a point, it has reached the bubbling point to where he is now receiving an unjust trial. It's, it's important to recognize that Jesus, Jesus' trial was because of first and foremost sin. Jesus was put to death by sinners for sinners. But from this root of sin, we find a branch of envy. And from this branch of envy, the fruit it has produced is an unjust trial where the Son of God, fully God and fully man, who was not deserving of death, was, had accusations thrown in his face, false claims, and was ultimately put to death on a cross. Again, this is a whole other sermon for another time, but if you're here this morning and you're holding on to, to envy, to, to angerness, and to bitterness, I would encourage you to see the fruits of what it causes and the results of it, of what it leads to. Though hanging on to it for, for 24 hours might not be such a big deal, we see that these religious leaders ha- held on to it for three years. For three years. And it caused a switch to be flipped to where they were unrecognizable whenever they put Jesus on trial. Let's continue in verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore, bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, thinking about the context in which this was written to the original audience of what this was being communicated to, Mark is being sure to emphasize in these few verses that there is no agreement within the testimonies. Now, if you look at Old Testament law and Jewish tradition, someone could not be put to death by one witness. For someone to be put to death, there had to be collaborating witness. In this group of between 30 and 50 men, not one witness can agree as to why Jesus should be put to death. Not one can agree. Even one of them quotes Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 19, when Jesus says, I will destroy this temple in three days, build it back up. Ultimately pointing to his bodily temple of how he was going to die, be buried, and be raised three days later, ultimately foreshadowing what he was going to do on the cross here just a few short chapters away. But even when Jesus is quoted, no agreement can come between the testimonies. No agreement is coming between the council, but we don't find any rebuttal from our Savior. I know that if I was sitting here enduring an unjust trial knowing me and growing up this happened all the time when false accusations are getting thrown between the siblings, be like, no, I didn't do that, or yes, I did do that all the time. It just happened growing up in a large family. But Jesus, while taking these false accusations, he's silent. Looking at all of the gospel accounts of the Sanhedrin Council, Scripture does not point to the fact that Jesus is engaging in dialogue, that he is staying silent. No correction, no rebuttal, 
no accusations or trying to correct silence up to this point. Now, according to Jewish law, since no one witness could agree, by law, Jesus would be set free. He could not be put to death. He could not endure the capital punishment of death since no one witness could agree. All Jesus would have to do to walk away, to still be living and to still be breathing, was to stay silent, to ride out this spectacle that was being put on by the Sanhedrin Council, to not say a word. Again, Scripture doesn't allude to Jesus communicating at this point. He could literally ride this out and not say a word and be set free and not have to die. Let's continue in verse 16. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, the perfect witness, I am. In a trial that according to tradition was ultimately leaning towards his favor, Jesus turns it on his head by being the perfect witness saying, I am the Son of God. I am who you say I am. And from this statement in verses 60 through 65, 63 through 65, we find that the Sanhedrin Council took this statement and Jesus was convicted on accounts of blasphemy, and he was spit on, and he was arrested, and he was presented to Pilate early that next day. But what Jesus has done here is huge. He has just signed his death certificate intentionally. What he has done is huge. Looking at all the gospel accounts leading up to this point, he knows what he must do the stress and the weight of what he is feeling, of going and taking and enduring the wrath of God upon the cross. We find in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, that there's accounts of Jesus sweating blood. And this condition of sweating blood, it's a very rare human condition, but it is brought upon by extreme levels of stress. Jesus, fully God, but fully man. We have a Savior who can sympathize with us because he walked in our shoes. He felt emotions. He felt what we felt. The weight of the world and enduring the wrath of God and being the perfect sacrifice is weighing down upon our Savior. And in Mark chapter 13, verse 26, just a little while earlier, Jesus says, Father, take this cup from me. Saying, God, God, if there is any way for me not to die, if there is any way for the perfect sacrifice to happen, and it does not include me going to the cross, please take this cup from me. I am not sure if I can do it. But he ultimately follows up and says, Father, Father, but your will be done. Like any man, no one wants to die, much less punishment upon the cross. The cross, the Romans, if they, if they knew one thing, it was how to kill people. The cross, the most gruesome, most vile death of all time, where literally you're hanging for hours and one bodily system after another is slowly shutting down. Accounts talk about whenever Jesus died, whenever he was stabbed on the side, that water came out. That he was hanging upon the cross for so long and bled so much, he literally had nothing left to give. 
no one wants a punishment like this. See, Jesus at any point during this unjust trial, during him going to the cross, he could have ascended into heaven. He could have called down, and rightfully so, being fully God, a legion of angels saying, no more, I do not have to sit here and take these false accusations. How dare you talk to the Son of God that way? How dare you say that to me? But he didn't. And Jesus, looking to have this cup taken away from him, this was his opportunity to stay silent and to have this cup taken from him to where he did not have to go to the cross. This was his chance. But he signed his death certificate intentionally. If he did not say a word, he could have walked away. And a mistrial would have been declared. Now, anything happening up to this point, Scripture gives us no reason to think, why would they start following the law now? But this was Jesus' chance. This was his chance to walk away. But he has just signed his death certificate intentionally. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because of the great love that he had for us, he still went to the cross. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God is a God of justice. And the wages of sin must be punished. Where every year during this time of Passover, the high priest, he would go, he would go into the temple, and he would go into this place called the Holy of Holies, and he would enter into this place once a year, and he would present a sacrifice for the people. But the sacrifice had to be performed annually, because again, anything done by human hands, it's not suffice. That's the reason why we couldn't die for ourselves, and we ourselves couldn't be the perfect sacrifice. We needed the perfect Savior to be the perfect sacrifice. But Jesus our true and our better high priest is coming to offer himself as a sacrifice during Passover that our sins might be covered should we place our faith and trust in him. Jesus is preparing to be the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate delivery. The wrath of God must be satisfied, and Jesus is the sacrifice for that wrath, willingly choosing it because he cannot bear the thought of eternity without you that he offers each and every single one of us an opportunity to place our faith and our trust in him. For God so loved the world, all-encompassing. This is why he is doing what he is. This is why he's enduring the unjust trial. And this is why he is ultimately going towards the cross. If Jesus does not go to the cross, Christianity as we know it today fails to exist. The gospel message, the love, the grace, the mercy, all of these things that we talk about fail to exist. There has to be blood to cover my sins and to restore the relationship between me and my creator should I choose to accept his gift of everlasting life. Jesus was a faithful witness for his death. He was a collaborating witness so that he could intercede that I might have life. Jesus was a faithful witness for his death so that he could intercede that I might have life. And I'll talk about this word intercede more in just a second, but scripture tells us in Romans chapter 14, verse 12, that all of us will have to stand and give an account before our creator and before our Lord, regardless if we have placed our faith and our trust in him. All of us, regardless if Jesus is our savior or not, will stand before my creator one day, will stand before my maker, and I will have to give an account because of this reality called sin 
And because of this reality called sin, I will die and I will have to face my maker and my creator. Now this word sin is used a lot in church culture. It is intricate and complex in so many ways, yet it is simple and deadly. What sin is, it, think of it in terms of, it's an archery term of sorts, the way that the Bible describes it. What it means, it means to fall short, to miss the mark of holiness, that no matter how hard I try on my own hands, I cannot be holy, I cannot be made right in the eyes of God. Simply put, it is a transgression against God and his will. When it's fleshed out, it is an action or a thought that treasures myself and my will over that of God's. It's an act of rebellion and betrayal against my maker and his commandments. It was brought into the world by man seeking one's pleasure and fulfillment outside of that of God's. And because it was brought into the world by man, it is now passed down by man. The ultimate generational curse. That all of us were born dead in our trespasses. That no matter how hard we try, we cannot change it. We are all born in this reality called sin with a nature and a default setting that is naturally bent towards rebellion of God. And because of the holiness of God, he cannot be in the presence of it. So, so from our birth, from conception, we are separated from him, born dead in our trespasses. There is no escaping it. We are all born full of it. We are born rich in sin. John Piper, author, pastor, and theologian, summarizes what sin is like this. Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, and the commandments of God not obeyed. This is what Jesus is coming to pay the price for. Effective for all and sufficient for all of those who place his faith and trust in him. Like Jesus, I will stand before my high priest one day. Whereas Jesus did not deserve death, I do. Where Jesus received the most unjust, backwards trial of all time, I will receive the most just and the most rightly deserved trial of all time. Because Jesus has died, and if we accept him as our Lord and Savior, his blood now covers my life. It washes away my sins. I am a new creation, no longer defined by my past and by my sin. And when I stand before my high priest one day, Jesus will be interceding for me, where he interceded for me first on the cross, went to the cross in which I deserved, took the wrath and the punishment that ultimately I should have taken, where he first interceded upon the cross. If I accept him as my Lord and my Savior, he will be interceding again for me in heaven. This is what scripture says about it, Romans eight thirty four. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is at even at the right hand of God, who also makes an intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 through 25. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save the uttermost, those who come to God through him. 
since he always lives to make an intercession for them. Now, this word, inter- this word intercession means an act of intervening on behalf of another. Again, Jesus went to the cross that should have been mine, this first act of intercession. But whenever I stand before my creator and my maker, he will be there to make an intercession for them, saying, Father, your wrath has been poured out for this child. Your wrath has been poured out on the cross on me. They have received my gift. My blood covers their life. Where he ultimately interceded for us on the cross, he will be interceding for us again whenever we receive the most just trial of all time, where we will have to go through the good and the bad and the ugly. Because of the cross, Jesus can and does intercede for his people. And once that blood covers your life, there's absolutely nothing you can do to change that or to lose that. For they are my sheep, and no one can snatch them from me. No matter how much we sin, no matter how long we live in rebellion of our maker, no matter how long we neglect time in the word or how egregious the sin is, once that blood covers your life, nothing can change that reality. They are my sheep, and no one can snatch them from me. But if you were not in Christ this morning, meaning Jesus is not your Lord and your Savior, there's not been a moment when you said, yes, Jesus, come and be the Lord and Savior of my life. This beautiful reality of intercession is not for you, but it is offered to you. It is offered to you. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Your creator sent his son to endure an unjust trial and to be put, by, and be put to death by the ones that he came to save so that you might have an opportunity to spend eternity with him. The world is not how he intended it to be. It is corrupted and it is broken by sin but he has taken the first step in initiating a relationship with you because of his great love. He's already sent Jesus to the cross to tell you how much he loves you. It's crazy to think about, man, how can a God love me? How can the creator of the universe love me? Is this really real? How do I know that I won't be shortchanged? How do I know that Jesus won't rip me off? Because God has already sent him to die. Because he has already died. He says, you see the blood that my son poured out? That was for you. That is how much I love you. See, this entire experience and encounter with the Sanhedrin Council has so many implications. Implications that we just don't have time to dive into all of them this morning. But perhaps it's most important is that Jesus still and does offer himself up and go to the cross. Jesus had a chance to walk away. All of the stress and the weight that he is feeling, he had a chance to walk away, but he did not. Because he knew what he must endure. He knew the death that he must take so that he might have an opportunity to spend a relationship with you and to spend eternity with you. He knew what he had to do, but he did not walk away. Jesus does what he must to make a way to restore the relationship with creation and creator. But Jesus is not the only character in this account. Peter, while all of this is going on, he is sitting in the courtyard warming himself by the fire. 
we find what's been going on with Peter and what's happening in verse 66. In Mark chapter 14, verse 66, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, We are also with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders came again and said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Man, you know, Peter gets a bad rap. He, he has a tendency to, to get a bad rap um, in the church world just because we have more evidence of Peter. No, um, no other disciple is mentioned as much as Peter is. Our, our, our boy Thaddeus, he's mentioned as being called, and then he's not mentioned again. So, I mean, as we know, like, Thaddeus, like we just don't know, but we do know a lot about Peter. We just know a lot about him because he is the one that is constantly mentioned. And because, yes, Peter did make a lot of mistakes, let's say that, but he's also the one that is mentioned the most just because we have more th stories about him. But let's give credit where credit is due. I think all of us would say that Jesus had a boldness for his Savior that is to be admired, that Peter had a boldness for his Savior. See, I, I think about what's going on in, in this encounter kind of like this. Jesus has just been taken into custody, his Savior, his friend, and his creator. Peter, from accounts, literally drew out a sword and cut off a guard's ear. That in the tendency of what does the human body do in extreme levels of stress, that Peter said, no, you are not taking my creator, my savior, my friend into custody. And that we don't see any other disciples here by the fire. We know that from accounts that whenever Jesus was crucified, that terrified and rightfully so, I would have been too. They were walked away. They were, they were locked away. They were hiding. But where are, where are the other disciples in this account? Where are the other disciples? Peter followed. He went to the courtyard. His boldness for his Savior is to be admired. His instinct that in a fight or flight moment, he chose to pursue Jesus. He chose to follow him. I know that I couldn't have done that. I would have locked myself away and I would have been hiding. But what, but what we find here is Peter denying his Savior. When not too long, just a few chapters earlier, Peter said, I would rather die than anything happen to you, Jesus. Say that it isn't so. Now this is probably the darkest moment of Peter's life, denying his creator, his Savior, and his friend. And we see how this moves the tough, the rugged fisherman that Scripture says below that he broke down when he heard the rooster crow. Because what Jesus said, what he had told him what was going to happen, ultimately did. His denial left him broken. But what I find most interesting about this encounter and story is the response that Jesus had to it. See, me and you, we, we have the benefit of knowing the end of the story. Of being able to see what Jesus did with Peter and how he forgave Peter despite his denial there in the moment. 
I'm sure all of us can probably look at our past and see the brokenness in which Jesus has brought us through and look back and say, man, aren't I so thankful that God rescued me and saved me from that? Even though we had no idea what the future held, man, there in that moment, it was dark and it was scary. But man, God is a God who saves. By his blood, the chains of sin and death are broken. And even though Peter didn't know the end of his story, we have the benefit of being able to look back and see what happened. What did happen to Peter after this dark moment? John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. At this point, Jesus has died on the cross, and he has, and he has been raised from the dead. He is alive. He's living. He's breathing. And this is before his final ascension into heaven. In verse 15, it says, When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him for a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. There it is, that word again. Peter was grieved when he asked him for a third time, do you love me, he said. Lord, you know with everything that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Though denying, Peter was not denied. Jesus does not deny those whom he has called regardless of their darkest moments. Though denying, Peter was not denied. Jesus does not deny those whom he has called regardless of their darkest moments. The beauty of the gospel message is that it is light in the darkest of situations. It is good news and comfort for those who cling to it. And it's a life-changing reality for all who accept it. Peter, despite his denial, being an imperfect witness for the perfect witness, denying his creator, his savior, and his friend, his darkest moments, we see here in John that he was asked three times if he loved Jesus. One for each denial. But it brings out this theme that we see in Scripture with the number three, themes of harmony, completeness, and new life. Peter, despite his mistake, was still forgiven. Peter, despite his mistake, was still forgiven. It blows my mind to think about that. This egregious, this man who walked with Jesus, physically walked with Jesus. He saw the miracles. He heard the sermons. He saw everything that happened. He denied Jesus, but Jesus still forgave. Jesus still forgave. He, despite his mistakes, he was still forgiven, and he was sent out for good works. Despite your story and where you are today, the cross is for you. You do not have to get yourself all cleaned up for Jesus. He desires you as you are. In your rebellion, he desires you. In your sinfulness and your brokenness, he desires you. One of my favorite stories from, from Scripture is the parable of the prodigal son. And in this son, a man has two sons, one of them who stayed and one of them who took half his father's inheritance and went and, and spent it all. In Jewish culture at this time, asking for the inheritance ahead of time before death was basically him telling the father, Father, I wish you were dead. I'm ready for you to die. I'm ready to speed, speed along this process, and I'm ready for this inheritance. He went, he took it, and he spent it. We know from accounts that eventually he, he was left broke. 
he had no money. <laughs> Scripture says that he was so desperate and so hungry that he was eating pig slop, that there was literally nothing to eat, that he ate pig slop. We find that he comes back and he says, man, maybe if I come back, maybe my father will accept me, man, just as a servant to live in the house, not as his son, but he will allow me to be the lowest man on the totem pole, and maybe I can work myself back into the position of son. The story goes that he's coming down the drive, and the father sees him. And the father doesn't go Chris Kyle with a, with a sniper rifle ready to take him out and to punish him. No, the father runs out and meets him. Covered in sweat from the journey, covered in pig slop's breath, absolutely stinky. In his disgustedness and in his brokenness, he gives him a kiss and says, Welcome home, my child. Welcome home, my child, and a party is thrown. You do not have to get yourself all cleaned up to come back to Jesus. You don't. Jesus went to the cross and he paid the price for your sins. He paid the price for your rebellion. He wants you. And he wants all of you, despite everything going on in your life, despite you living in rebellion, despite your sin behind the closet, despite all of your sin that has not been confessed, things going on behind closed doors, despite a life that there has been nothing testifying that, man, I am a follower of Christ. Jesus can, and he does forgive. But notice what the son did. He had to return home. He had to return home child, if you're here and you're wandering today, the cross is still for you. They are my sheep and no one can snatch them from me. We have a good heavenly father who does not abandon, who does not leave despite how egregious our sin is. The love that he has for us is great. And despite a life full of sin, man, let me tell you, his sacrifice was sufficient for all. It was. If you choose to accept a man, his blood covers your life and you are a new creation in him. And the chains of sin and death are broken. Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. That no one comes to the Father except through me. Notice how singular Jesus is here. He doesn't offer a buffet, which I love buffets. I'm 20 pounds heavier than when I was when I moved away because of all the buffets in Kansas City. I like enjoying myself a good buffet. I like having the options. But notice how singular Jesus is, is here. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The only way to come to the Father to have life and life everlasting is through me by placing your faith and trust in me. Jesus is the way for life and life for the full. He says in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life in abundance or have it life and life to the full, depending on the translation you're reading. The only way to have life everlasting and have all the answers to our problems, all the things that you seek, is by having Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. We, we, we live in a culture that is all about my truth, that my opinion reigns supreme. But we know that the Bible says, for the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. That my truth that I have and that I adhere to, like a grass and like the flower, it will fade away. It will be no more. But what the Bible declares is supreme. The truth that it declares is supreme. That Jesus is the way, he is the truth, but he is the life. The only way to have everlasting life. There's nothing that we can do on our own power to work our way into heaven and to do good works. It is only by placing our faith and trust in Jesus. 
and resting on his finished work. If you are here this morning and Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and you feel like you are working yourself to the bone to be made right in the eyes of God, Christ's follower, rest. Jesus' work is finished. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot earn your way to a higher degree of Christianity. There is no level 100 of Christianity. Just all of us in a relationship and on a journey with our God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to have everlasting life. To have someone who intercedes for us is by accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. God loves you so much. When you look at the story and you look at the account of the Sanhedrin Council and you see, man, Jesus had an opportunity to walk away. His love is declared by the fact of how he endured such an unjust trial. His love is declared by how he went to the cross. His love is declared that he took the lashes from the whip, took the crown of thorns upon his head. His love is declared for you. God loves you so much. Everything we see and experience today is out of an overflow of that love. The perfect witness has died so that he could intercede for us should we choose to accept him despite of how undeserving we are. If you're here today and you have not asked Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, I would like to invite you today to do so. God declares his great love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. He loves you so much that he bled out on a cross for you. He endured an unjust trial for you. He loves you so much, and he wants so much to get to spend eternity with you and to have a relationship with him. What other God would create the world out of love and then take the first step in initiating a relationship so that he can be in a relationship with his creation? God does not demand, he invites. He wants you to accept, he wants you to follow him. He doesn't want begrudging submission. He wants a loving relationship and lovingly follow. And it's from this relationship that ultimately we find everything that we're looking for joy, happiness, peace, contentment, all these things that on my own I am trying to find the answers to in this life. But ultimately, by losing my life and giving it to Christ, I have found it. Whoever tries to save his own life will ultimately end up losing it. But by losing my life, I have found it and everything that Jesus offers. Freedom from my sins and joy and happiness unimaginable. And for those of us here today that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, be encouraged by the lengths that your Savior went to purchase your soul. Be encouraged, be reminded. Your value and your worth is declared by the lengths that Jesus went to secure you for eternity. Your value and your worth is not declared by what humans say about you, but what Jesus did on the cross for you. Your value and your worth is declared as supreme by Jesus' finished work. But this morning, I want to leave you with this. I want to encourage you to not be a Peter, to let Christ be more than just a Sunday morning thing, but an every day of the week type of thing, to not only claim devotion to him on Sundays and revert to another self as soon as push comes to shove, as soon as we step out the doors. Despite the perfect shepherd, we are all prone to wander. I have done it as well. But in the same way there is grace for Peter, there is grace for you. Psalms 51 tells us the sacrifice that God desires is a broken and a repentant heart. And in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. When Jesus says, it is finished upon the cross, there's a verb that is used in, in the Greek that is this word, telestasi. 
And there are certain words in, in Greek that just no matter how hard we try in the English, that we just can't help but bring it out. But telestasi, it takes on this tense called the perfect or the perfective. What it means, it is a past action that has implications for the future. The perfective verb is used very, very rarely in the Greek and in the New Testament. But it's a past action that has implications for your future. Jesus was not just some cool dude who died who's preaching a message of morality. No, he died. His death has implications for you today to respond to his gospel message, to either come back and to accept it for the first time or to repent and say, man, I have messed up. But because it is finished, because, it is, because Christ's finished work is perfect, the chains of sin and death are broken. Christ's work is finished. And if you accepted him to be your Lord and Savior, you get to walk in that freedom that he offers you today by God's wrath being poured out upon him. Let's pray.